And Father, we each come this morning with our own different need, our own uh, desires, our own difficulties, our own longings. And so, Father, we, we take those and, and we lay them at your feet. Uh, we know that we're unable to, to, to take care of these things on our own. We need you. We need you working in our hearts, in our lives, in our families, in the world. Um, and we trust you with them. And, Father, that's why we come to your word as well, because we, we trust you. We know that, that you're working in and through your word, that you're leading us, guiding us, you're teaching, correcting, you're rebuking, so that we would become more and more like you. And so, Father, we pray that you do that now as we come to your word, that, that you would correct in us anything that needs to be corrected, and that you would encourage in us where we need encouragement, and that you would strengthen us where we're weak, and that you would lead us from here out into the world to be your people. And so, Father, we pray that you would speak um, and that you would open our ears to hear and our eyes to see and our hearts to receive what you have to say to us this morning. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. I have the scripture reading for this morning. Uh, It's going to center on Judah, one of the sons of Jacob. I think you've been introduced to him last Sunday. And I'm going to be looking at the Joseph narrative uh, from Genesis 37 to 50, but I won't read all of it. Just the sections that center on Judah's role in how he handled his brother Joseph. So the first passage is... 37 in Genesis uh, chapter 37 from verses 25 to 28. I guess you have it on the screen behind me too. So if you want to look at it, you have Bibles in front of you too, if you want to look at a printed text. In fact, it was kind of interesting. The service I took uh, last Sunday, I was in Liberia at the service where I went. They didn't allow us to use phones. If we wanted to read scripture, we had to have the the real Bibles in front of us. So that kind of put me on the spot because I didn't have the real Bible in front of me. I only had my iPhone. So, But starting in chapter 37, as they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. And then moving on further into the Joseph story, starting at uh, chapter 43, uh, verses 8 to 10. Then Judah said to, his, to Israel, his father, Send the boy along with me, and we will go at once, so that we and you and our children may live and not die. I myself will guarantee his safety. You can hold me personally responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him here before you, I will bear the blame before you all of my life. As it is, if we had not delayed, we would have gone and returned twice. 
And then finally, looking at chapter 44, verses 14 to the end of this chapter. Joseph was still in the house when Judah and his brothers came in, and they threw themselves to the ground before him. Joseph said to them, What is this you have done? Don't you know that a man like me can find things out by divination? What can we say to my Lord? Judah replied. What can we say? How can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered your servant's guilt. We are now my Lord's slaves, we ourselves, and the one who was found to have the cup. But Joseph said, Far be it from me to do such a thing. Only the man who was found to have the cup will become my slave. The rest of you go back to your father in peace. Then Judah went up to him and said, Please, my Lord, let your servant speak a word to my Lord. Do not be angry with your servant, though you are equal to Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servants, Do you have a father or a brother? And we answered, We have an aged father, and there is a young son born to him in his old age. His brother is dead, and he is the only one of his mother's sons left, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me so I can see him for myself. And we said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father. If he leaves him, his father will die. But you told your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you will not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him what my Lord had said. Then our father said, go back and buy a little more food. But we said, we cannot go down. Only if our youngest brother is with us will we go. We cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One of them went away from me, and I said he has surely been torn to pieces, and I have not seen him since. If you take this one from me too and harm comes to him, you will bring my gray hair down to the grave in misery. So now, if the boy is not with us when I go back to your servant, my father, and if my father, whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life, sees that the boy isn't there, he will die. Your servants will bring the gray hair of our father down to the grave in sorrow. Your servant guaranteed the boy's safety to my father. I said, if I do not bring him back to you, I will bear the blame before you, my father, all my life. Now then, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy and let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do, let me, do not let me see the misery that would come upon my father. Thanks, Don. A little difficult to try to trace about you know, 15 chapters of Scripture. Um, but those will kind of help give us uh, a hop, skip, and a jump through the story, and I'll fill in some details throughout it. Um, but I wanted to start off with this line. This is a famous line from an author named Leo Tolstoy, uh, the beginning of his book, Anna Karenina. And I think this kind of is applicable to not only this morning's passage, but Judah's life in particular. He says, Happy families are all alike, 
Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Um, and, you know, I, I think during this season, especially between Thanksgiving and Christmas, sometimes this hits close to us um, because we know that these seasons where there's holidays and, and celebrations and family get-togethers, that they can often be filled with joy and peace and connection and reminiscing about the past but we also know that they can be filled with frustration and fighting and anxiety and everything else that comes with kind of the complicated dynamics of families. And you know, anytime you get family together in one place, there's opportunity for great joy <laughs> or a great mess. Um, it seems like Families get together and everything gets exaggerated a little bit. Joys get exaggerated in a good way, but so do some anxieties and tensions. And, you know, every family can be unhappy in its own way. And, and one of the things that, that it does that we don't always realize is when, when we get into those moments where there's tension and conflict in our families, it creates longing in us. We don't always call it that, but we find ourselves going... Man, can't we just all get along like we used to? Right? Do you remember those days when we all got along and we long for those days when we do that? Or, or can we, I just long for the day when our family can get together and we don't have to walk on eggshells around each other wondering if I'm going to say something that's going to make somebody angry. We can just rest, be at peace with one another, right? We're longing for those moments when everything just kind of feels right. Again, And I kind of start it off that way because as we're kind of tracing the life of Judah throughout the Old Testament, it's, it's important to know that his family was a very, very unhappy family. Um, we got a glimpse of that last week, but I, I was kind of laughing this week. I was listening to Kevin DeYoung. Um, he was kind of preaching on some of these passages, and he said, can you imagine growing up in a home where every child's name is a representation of the fighting going on between the wives and the servants? Right? Like this child's name is, I gotcha. And then this child's name is, nah, now I'm on top. And then this child's name, and so like now for the rest of your life, you know, like you're, I got you and you're, I'm on. Like there's just fighting and, and jealousy and envy and strife. It, it was just kind of a mess from the beginning. And it, and it kind of led one of the commentators to write this line, and I know this has been in the back of our minds so far. He says, God makes the most surprising choices, right? He chooses a family divided by favoritism, immaturity, jealousy, and vengeance, right? We see that. That's clearly what this family is described as uh, throughout most of the book of Genesis. And you go, why this family? <laughs> right? Why this line? And, and we, it just kind of, we see this pop up, right? Last week we saw this line that kind of shows how the beginning of all of this conflict and strife happens in the family, right? Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah, that was kind of ominous, setting the tone, like things are not going to go well here. And then, at the beginning of this story, we didn't read it this morning, there's this line though. Israel, Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. 
And that doesn't go over well, right? The very next verse we read, this is the result of that. His brothers saw that their father loved him more than his brothers, and they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Right? Just, this is the family situation we're seeing in Genesis, is that there's uh, multiple wives and concubines. That's already going to cause a lot of problems. That's not how God designed it to work. They're all fighting with one another, and now their children are all fighting with each other. And we've kind of seen that, and those of you who kind of know some of the Old Testament stories know this ends leads to something pretty terrible, right? Joseph, Jacob sends Joseph out to meet his brothers out in the fields to kind of help them tend the flock. And the brothers see Joseph coming to him, and they said, this is our opportunity to get rid of this spoiled, rotten little brat. We're going to kill him. And then we won't have to deal with him anymore. Um, now, Reuben, the oldest, has says like, let's not kill him, let's throw him in a pit. And he's like, I'm going to sneak back and try to save him. And they think, well, that's a good idea. So they rip his coat off and they throw him in the pit. And then they do what? They sit down and eat lunch. Right? I mean, it, it's, that's there to show us how callous they are. And a lot of commentators actually say, most likely they're eating food that Joseph brought them. So like the story of David, when David gets sent out to his brothers, he's bringing food to them. Most likely, the father, Jacob, was sending Joseph out to his brothers to bring them food. So they strip him of his coat, they throw him in the pit, they take the food that he gave them, they sit down next to the pit and just eat, like not a care in the world. It's written to show us how wicked this whole situation is. And it gets worse, because as they're eating... Judah comes in, right? And this is the first time we hear of Judah since he's been born. So there's kind of a big gap here. But the first words we hear out of Judah's mouth are this. What profit is it if we kill our brother to seal his blood? Let's sell him to the Ishmaelites. Let not our hand be against him, for he's our own brother, our own flesh. Like, what a guy, huh? (laughs) Like, if we kill him... We get rid of him, but we don't benefit anything. We get, we get nothing out of this. We just are going to feel guilty. So we might as well get something out of this. So if we sell him, we, we get rid of the punk. We don't have to kill him and try to conceal that. And we make some cash. Like he's kind of an entrepreneur. And his brothers like that idea, right? So they sell him for 20 shekels which is a lot of money. At the time, like the average shepherd made like eight shekels a year, right? So this is like almost four years salary, right? If we're you know, selling him for like 250 grand. And they get to keep their conscience clean. And I'm putting that in quotes. They think they're going to keep their conscience clean. And and again, all of this, none of this is written. Anybody who wants to try to take this and try to make it seem like Judah is being a good guy here is missing the point of the story. Judah is not. Uh, this is painted to show us that Judah and his brothers were wicked. And they were hard-hearted and they were cold. And, and Judah is even worse because he's the one kind of leading the plotting. Leading the deceiving, leading the manipulation in this. And it kind of brings back that statement at the beginning, right? 
God makes surprising choices, right? I think that's kind of politically correct um, and an understatement. Like, most of us are going, what was God thinking? Like, these guys are terrible. They're awful people. And these are going to be the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel? Like, these guys? And what it does is it creates a longing in us, right? There's a longing in us to say, we want something better than these guys. And I'll just make things worse. Because this isn't the first time we've seen wickedness from this family. Actually, from the beginning up until now, we've seen nothing but wickedness and and evil and manipulation and jealousy. Uh, We've seen, I've already described the fighting between Rachel and Leah and Bilhah and Zilpah. They were all fighting. Right after that, we see Jacob totally mishandle his daughter being raped. He, he does nothing about it, just kind of sits back. Um, but then two of his sons, Simeon and Levi, they take matters into their own hands, but they don't handle that well. They deceive and kill all the men of the city. And so Simeon and Levi are not real great characters in the plot either. Right after that, Reuben, the firstborn, he sleeps with his stepmom. That's not good. And so... Like, this family is a nightmare. <laughs> and, and it's full of wickedness and strife and deception. And, and they eventually sell their brother into slavery. And all of this is kind of led with Judah. <laughs> kind of crafting the scheme of how to make this all come about. And it's a family that's categorized by jealousy, envy, wickedness, strife, and guilt. Um, one of the things that I think is important to know, and I'll show you this later, but you know, part of Judah's argument for selling him into slavery is we'll be clean from this. He was trying to pitch like we won't feel guilty for killing him. We'll be clean of it. And yet um, what we're going to see is that that guilt of what they did just hung on them. It, it clung to them for, for decades because um, if you know the story, right, they, they sell Joseph into slavery. He goes through a whole bunch of stuff, ends up becoming the right-hand man to Pharaoh, right? Right before a famine comes in and Joseph has the plan so that Egypt is the only place that has food. And so everybody's coming to them to live and get food. Even his brothers who sold him into slavery, right, end up coming back to him in Egypt to get food. And, and Joseph's not like perfect in this story either. Joseph kind of plays the role of like the Count of Monte Cristo in this, right? Like, okay, I'm going to run you guys through the ringer. And so he's playing games with them. He's manipulating. He's doing his things. He's kind of running them through the ringer. And yet in the midst of all of this, this is all 20, I think 20, 22 years after they sold Joseph into slavery. Here's what their brothers say. They say, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. And they're talking about Joseph. They don't know they're talking to Joseph, but they're talking. In that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we didn't listen. That's why this distress has come upon us, right? Like 22 years later, they still hear Joseph's cries from the pit as they sat and ate lunch. Uh, They hear Joseph's cries as they were 
carrying him away into slavery. And they feel the guilt of that. They said, like, we've been guilty of this for 20 years, and now this is why everything's going wrong. Like, we're getting our comeuppance, right? It's all coming back on our heads. And so they've been bearing this guilt, and they've been longing to be free for 20 years. And so it's been a mess for not just a short period of time, but for decades. We're talking 30 years, 40 years. Um, it's been a mess. But here's, here's what's kind of beautiful, actually, about the whole story. <laughs> I know it sounds pretty you know, dark, but, there, but there's something beautiful going on in this story, something really powerful. And, and it's somewhat connected with last week's, but it's different. You know, last week, the reminder was in, in the midst of all of that darkness and manipulation and evil and deceit, you know, God was still carrying out his plan, right? God was bringing about his purposes, and it's kind of this big overarching plan. But, but what we see in this story is God doing that. He's carrying out his plan. He's carrying out his purposes. But, but what he's doing, he's doing it in a real real specific ways, and he's doing it by, by changing the lives of these men who are wicked. Um, and, and the family that, that has been characterized by envy and deceit and slander and wickedness for, for decades changes. They're transformed by the end of the story. Um, and especially in Judah, and we see something significant happen with Judah. And in order to catch that, it's important to kind of know, to recognize what's been happening throughout Genesis with Judah. Um, Because we see Judah, especially in just the little clips we saw that Don read, Judah's really acting as if he's the leader of the family, isn't he? Which should ask us why. He's the fourth-born son, right? It's normally the first-born son that does that. But that was Reuben. Reuben kind of lost that place by sleeping with his stepmom, right? Jacob's like, yeah, you're, you're not going to be as the firstborn son. Well, who's the second and the third? Simeon and Levi. What happened to them? They lost that place by going and slaughtering an entire town full of people in their own vengeance and rage. And so what does that leave us with? Brings us down to, to Judah. And, and Judah starts kind of stepping into that role of, of leader in the family. And and he starts off doing it negatively by plotting this plan to sell Joseph into slavery. But, but it also means that as he goes through life and does some hard time and deals with guilt and difficulty and trial, something changes in him. And we see that as his family's running out of food, he starts to take responsibility for the family. Even more so, I think, than Jacob. Because Jacob is not saying, we're out of food. You have to go get more food. Let's do what needs to get done. You see Judah saying to Jacob, we need to get food now. And you've put this off too long, Dad. You've been too afraid to do this for too long now. We need food now. Send us. I know you don't want to get rid of Benjamin. I know you love him. You've already lost one child that you love. But we need food now. Send him with us. But then he does this, and we, one of the ways we see how transformation is happening in Judah's life is twice in this story, Judah offers his life for the sake of Benjamin. He does it with Jacob at the beginning when he's saying, we need to go back to Egypt. He says, Father, send the boy with me. Send Benjamin with me. 
will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our children, like our whole families. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you can require him. If I don't bring him back to you and set him before you, let me bear the blame forever. Right? So Judah's saying, I'm offering my life for his in this. I'm willing to do what it's going to take to, to care for, provide for this family. And we know that they go back to Egypt and, and Joseph gives them some food, plays a game with the cup. He puts it in Benjamin's thing and makes it, sets him up so it looks like Benjamin stole from him. And now Benjamin, they go back and he's like, I'm going to lock Benjamin up and he's going to be a slave. The rest of you can go free. Catch that. The rest of you can be clean of this. But Benjamin's going to be a slave. It's the same situation that happened between the brothers and Joseph 20-something years earlier. But this time, Judah says, no, let me remain and be a slave instead of the boy. Let the boy go back with his brothers. Right? When faced with this situation of, hey, take the loved one, the special child. Let's get rid of him. He can be a slave and we can all go free. Instead of saying, that sounds like a good plan, Judah says, no, make me a slave and send him back. And one commentator wrote, you know, Judah had been happy to sell Joseph into slavery and make some money on the deal and disregard his father's distress. But now Judah pleads to be allowed to stay instead of the boy as the slave. No more moving example of true contrition and repentance is to be found in Scripture unless it be the parable of the prodigal son. And so we see this, this transformation happening in Judah, but also the other brothers, all of the patriarchs. And, and there's something even, even more powerful in this, and it's hard to explain. I really struggled how to explain this. So if it doesn't make sense to you, hopefully the Lord helps. But uh, think about the way in which Judah makes his argument for why why he should not let Benjamin become a slave, right? Think back to the argument that Judah made initially, right? What, what led them to want to sell Joseph into slavery? Because Joseph was the loved special boy. And that made them angry and they hated him and they wanted to get rid of him and sell him into slavery. But now when they're there and Benjamin, the loved special boy is about to get sold into slavery, what's the reason he get, that Judah gives why he shouldn't? My father loves him more than the rest of us. Don't take him away from my father. Take me instead. You see that? It's a powerful... I mean, some of the commentators even say, like, what Judah's doing is saying, I'm not even a legitimate son. Don't even worry about me anymore. It's not about me anymore. Just, just let this son, whom my father loves, go back to him. I'll give my life for him. Um, There's a huge change in him where he's not worried about all of the envy and the jealousy and the strife. He just cares about his father and he cares about his brother and he's willing to lay down his life for him. And it happens in Judah, but we see that happening in all of the other brothers as well, all the patriarchs of Israel. And that's really one of the powerful things that we see happening in this story is that 
in the midst of all of that, right, in the midst of all of the wickedness of this family, in the midst of all of the deceit and the manipulation, all of that mess, God's at work. And he's at work not just carrying out this big plan to bring the Messiah, but he's at work in them, changing them, transforming them from their lives of wickedness. Right? Another commentator says this whole story pertains to the transformation of Jacob's sons under God's providence. It concerns God's covenant dealings with the patriarchs and the establishment of his plans for the children of Israel. Don't miss this line. He keeps covenant by transforming all of Jacob's children, particularly Judah, to make them his worthy covenant partners. In God's providential design, these men are refined through difficult trials, right? So God's keeping covenant with his people by transforming them, right? And that's, that's really the second part of what makes that first statement I said beautiful, right? That first statement that God makes surprising choices, right? He chooses wicked nations and wicked people. Yes, he does. But he keeps covenant with them, not by just choosing wicked people and then forgiving them and letting them continue to be wicked. He, he keeps covenant with them by choosing wicked people, forgiving them, cleansing them, and then completely transforming them and shaping them to become more and more like him. Um, I mean, what's beautiful about someone just being forgiven and then being allowed to continue on destroying themselves and other people? The, the beauty is that God says, you are a wicked people and you're my people, and I'm going to change you and I'm going to transform you so you become more and more like me. I'm going to build a nation out of you. And, and what we recognize in the story is, for one, God does that transformation He often does it through trials and difficulty, right? But it also takes a really long time. It doesn't just happen overnight, right? It was 40 years in the making with these men. And here's why that's important for us to remember. Because, you know, I mentioned last week that that Advent is this season of of longing, right? We have to to learn how how to balance patience and longing in the midst of Advent. And, and on the one hand, it, 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 this should create a longing in us, right? That, that we have to recognize that, that when God chose us to be his people, he also chose wicked people, right? Including me um, and my own envy and jealousy and strife and, and stupidity, whatever. And then I need to recognize that in myself and recognize how much damage that does to me and everyone else and how that dishonors God. And that needs to create a longing in me and in you that God would transform us to be more like him and to be his people. We need to be constantly longing in this season to be changed and, and to be made more like Jesus. We, we must never be content with our sin. Be longing to become more like him. And yet... In the midst of that longing to become more like him, we also have to learn patience with ourselves and patience with other people because that transformation takes a very long time and it takes longer than we want it to. In our lives, it often takes way longer than we want it to in other people's lives. God, be patient with me, but not with them. They're they're bothering me. And so we have to learn that this transformation comes through trials and difficulty in life. And it sometimes will take decades for it to come about. And so we need to have 
patience and yet longing. We need to hold them together. We don't just get to be pa- I'll just be patient. It might take 50 years for me to be transformed. No, you need to long to be transformed, recognizing that it'll probably take longer than you want. Patience and longing, you hold on to both of those together. And, you know, in the midst of, in the midst of this season, the reminder is that the only way we actually ever hold those two things in tension is through Christ. Because he's the one who came, right? He came into this world and he, he endured suffering and wickedness and manipulation and slander and envy and jealousy and strife. He endured all of that so that we could be set free from those things. We could be transformed for them, right? He, he lived and he died and he rose again so that we could be forgiven and so that we could be set free. And, and you know, in the same way that God worked then in the lives of Judah and in the lives of all the patriarchs, kind of shaping them, forming a nation for himself, through Christ, that's what God's doing now in and, in and through us. He's, he's shaping not just each of us individually, he is, but he's shaping us collectively to be a people for himself, a nation, a, a kingdom of priests here in this world. And that's why we read in Titus that, that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people, a nation for his own possession who are zealous, passionate, longing for good works. So it's a reminder for us in this season, not only do we just long for and look forward to the birth of Jesus, we long for the salvation that he brings, the forgiveness that he brings, the the cleansing that he brings, but we also long for the transformation that he brings in us. And we patiently endure that knowing that he's walking with us, that the Spirit's walking with us, and he will finish what he started in us, in his people, uh, and ultimately his plan. He will finish it. Let's come to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we we come into your presence. Again, thankful just for who you are. Thankful for your patience with us. Because when we're honest with ourselves, Father, we're all impatient people. Impatient people with ourselves, impatient with those around us. And Father, when we're honest, we're often just comfortable, complacent in our sin. And so Father, we ask you to forgive us. Uh, Forgive us for settling for less than what you have to offer. Uh, Forgive us for being blind and and taken it by the world. And uh, Forgive us for our impatience. Forgive us for relying on ourselves. Forgive us for so many ways in which we can just give in to our own wicked inclinations. So, Father, forgive us, we pray. We're thankful that we can come to you knowing that through Christ we're forgiven, um, we're cleansed. And, Father, we pray that as we, we leave from here that your spirit would, would fill us anew and strengthen us and empower us to, to follow you in the world, that as we go out from here, we can leave here with both a patience and a longing a longing to become more and more like you and then a patience to allow that to happen in your own timing, Lord. Hold on to us. Uh, transform us. Um, shape us to become your people, a nation here on earth. 
Help us to continue to long for the day when, when you will come and, and your kingdom will fully come on earth as it is in heaven. And we as your people will be fully transformed to be like you. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.